Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books and Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Sarah Miner, a brilliant and exciting author and artist. Miner has written a new book that looks into, in fact, I might even say, sinks us or maybe slathers us in slime. And if that sounds more disgusting than appealing, that's one of the many wonders of slime that Miner reveals. Yes, slime grosses us out, and yet its grossness somehow comes curiously close to desire. Slime features in immensely popular genres our culture loves and loathes, like horror movies and pornography. Slime has its own online communities. Slime even comes from outer space and lands on the earth as gelatinous meteors. Slime, once you start looking for it, shows up in spaces where we expect birth and death, where bodies connect and boundaries dissolve. Miner's book is called Slim Confessions, The Universe as a Spider or Spit which is a title that slimes together unexpected things, and I start our conversation by asking her about it. Here's my chat with the warm and wonderfully unslimy Sarah Miner. Sarah Miner, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Eric. It's great to have you. So here we have Slim Confessions, the Universe as a Spider or Spit. Yes. (laughs) That is quite a title to walk into, including for the listener who might not have heard that or if I hadn't done it right. It's S-L-I-M, not slime, but slim. Um, Could you just maybe take us into the book through the title? Um, Because it's fascinating. Sure. Yes. Um, Well, it is a book in some ways interested in language and slim confessions. The word slim is actually the Icelandic word for slime if it has an accent over the I. So in Icelandic, you would read, uh, you would read in two languages, you would read slime confessions. Um, But slime confessions are also kind of, uh, they are an Instagram trend in which users who manipulate slime on screen I use the hashtag slime confessions to confess something below a video that's otherwise not necessarily about them, but of slime. So and it became a strategy. I was sort of interested in adopting a sort of narrative strategy in an image text where um, there are a lot of images of slime that are visual. There are a lot of images of slime that are written. Um, or described with language. And then um, there are our confessions breaking up that long stream of slime, uh, which I think of as kind of a narrative engine or a gas station, if you're familiar with that way of thinking about story. Um, but also maybe a break from a lot of research and otherwise continuous information. So Slim Confessions, it's an internet trend, it's a form, it's a title in two languages. And then the universe as a spider or spit is a, um, it comes from the quote that opens the book from Georges Bataille. Um, and he has, at the end of the quote, he says, affirming that the universe resembles nothing and is only formless amounts to saying that the universe is something like a spider or spit. Um, so it's, this um, this book is kind of a response to that quote. Like it is arguing that the universe is those things. And it also features um, some spiders and some spits along the way. <laughs> so there's a lot in there in just the, the first few words on the cover. There is, there is. And I'm glad we did it that way because, you know, you could say, you know, this is, this is a, a long form 
essay about slime, but that would barely get, I think, at all that's going on in it. And if I said it was long form, that would be misrepresentative because it's something more like long formlessness. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so, you know, I, I think you did give readers a kind of peek into the book, but could you just give us a sense of like what we would encounter? You had mentioned that you're mm -hmm. using image and you're using... So you open the book and, and what do you see? Yeah, you see um, on the page, it, it looks like one continuous column of text with some pretty wide margins. Um, and that is broken up intermittently with black and white images. So I was speaking with someone who was trying, who was trying to convince me that this was a photo essay. And I sort of like that idea um, if we start thinking about some contributions to the history of photography as being screenshots. <laughs> you know, the screenshot is really um, uh, something we exchange very often in all sorts of platforms for various reasons. And so all the images in this piece are screenshots from films and videos um, that I watched online. Um, some, are, some of them are like uh, campy films, some of them are YouTube videos, some of them are slime on Instagram and um, so that that sort of creates the feeling of I've been liking to say a continuous pour <laughs> continuous pour <laughs> throughout the book or long formlessness as you so beautifully said Eric yeah um, but it also um, across that pour you'll encounter the narrative of Three months I spent working on a sheep farm in Iceland during the lambing season when every day I was just helping sheep give birth um, continuously <laughs> to new lambs and um, a lot of research about horror and campiness and the trope of slime, but particularly slime on screen and what it has meant and how we can read it in its context throughout a couple periods of history. And I, I'm asking those there's several things to be in conversation throughout the piece. So what brought you to slime? There are so many ways to go into the book. Um, and you you could have written, it's, it's clear from the book itself, you could have written this really insightful and brilliant piece of cultural criticism about slime that mm -hmm. you weren't in, um, kind of an objective piece. Um, but but you show up again and again in in the continuous pour. Mm -hmm. um, so could you tell us a little bit about what what got you here? Yeah. The origins. Well, so so I mean, it's interesting. It is a book of nonfiction in the form of an essay, and in some ways, I include some of that. Like how I got there was through the farm where I worked with a young girl who was really into watching these slime videos on her smartphone in the evening once we got back from the barn. And that trajectory is pretty direct. That's like sort of mapped out how the book came to be. But I was, before coming to Iceland, um, interested in the ASMR genre, which includes all sorts of materials and media. Uh, so, and I was thinking I was going there to write critically about um, I had this whole proposal and I was on a grant that funded me to go there and I was interested in the relationships between language and landscape and how landscapes shape languages that form there. I was particularly interested in coming to study in Iceland these rock cairns um, that are stacked along the footpaths that cross the, the island country that used to be really the only way of getting around. Um, and their name for the, the cairns is the same word as hag. And uh, I was thinking I was going to go study these like hag cairns <laughs> in the landscape. Um, and my plans sort of changed as they do in a creative project. And so I sort of just gave my permission to follow the changes as they came. And, um, and sheep really became one of the central focuses of what I was doing with my time and what I was thinking around as I was writing about this place, this landscape. And I think I still, I like to think that I still finished a project about how language is shaped by landscape, I think. Um, but this is maybe an example of just like letting what seems accidental come in at every turn. 
When when you say you were helping give Liam's birth continuously, I can imagine. I'm almost 100% certain, having read it, that, that the listener has a more antiseptic vision of what that looks like <laughs> in their mind uh-huh. than what you actually experience. Could you give us a little sense of, of what it's like to help the lambs come in? Um, yeah. It's nothing that would be shot in Disney. No, no. Um, and, you know, I was working on what is technically still a small-scale family-run farm, but there were hundreds and hundreds of sheep all in this one giant barn kind of encased in long rows that were fenced off. And they each um, were, all of them were together in a big flock inside the barn. And it was kind of beautiful to see the barn gradually shift where as soon as a, a sheep had a pair of lambs, they would cordon off a pen in one part of the barn. So gradually a huge open space became little a little grid of, of sheep with their babies. But the lambs would often be born in that big mass of sheep that was all in one giant pen and you would you would climb among them um there would be like (laughs) sheep aunties like stepping on the lamb's head as it was being born they would be born into you know like urine and feces that were in the pen around the sheep um sheep are very intelligent but they are clumsy and very skittish and so that often <laughs> there would be some hilarious and dangerous scenes of us like trying to run after a sheep who had half a lamb hanging out at the end of her while she, while she was giving birth. And so, um, yeah, just the realities of confined space and necessity and um, all of these animals who are like, you know, all, all got pregnant on the same day or within five days of each other and are all about to give birth within the same span. Um, and this breed of sheep is famously not very good at giving birth on its own sort of as it has adapted to farmers helping it across time so often someone needs to be there to pull out the last hoof or make sure that if uh if it's born in its birth sack and the sheep doesn't open it up you have to be the one to open it up and let it breathe its first air so and there was no and there's also no soap in the barn there were no rags there was no um there was no, when the placenta was on the ground, we were supposed to kind of shove it through the floorboards of the barn. It didn't go anywhere, you know. So, um, but everything, you know, there were no infections. No one was, I didn't consider it dirty after a while. It was just all part of one material happening. Um, That's a really great description. And, and what happened, I mean, at least my experience of reading is it's not so much that that things are getting different than they should, but you're getting more and more kind of coded in one as you're, you know, as you're reaching into to different sheep and, you know, the days are going by and the, you know, you're getting the smell in your hair and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's almost like the, the slime is becoming, or the, you know, the various birth liquids and things and everything that's taking place it's creating this larger environment, um, you know, where where bodies and even animals are becoming indistinct, even as they're being born. It's it's all well. It's going to be too obvious, but very fluid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know, once you write a book, it's immediately smarter than you are. Like I'll go back and read things I've written and think, like, oh, what's that word? Like I haven't seen that word before, but obviously I wrote it and. And here, Eric, I think you're pulling out something that like, I may have considered in the process of writing but have entirely forgotten, which is that the experience of working on a farm on this very small team of people, you know, no one is a doctor, no one has any academic training. These are all people who've lived with sheep for generations. And, and I did kind of feel myself get folded into the unending days and processes and cycles of that collective work in, in some way than what is slime is also like that collective experience um, while well, everyone and everything is running together and you don't really have to speak anymore. You just kind of do what's urgent at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, you know, the literature of slime is not vast and wide. <laughs> um, this is really in some ways I read it and I think, Oh my gosh, this should be a kind of, it's so strange. It's so fascinating. Um, 
and you've been you're the one that's looked into it and suddenly uh i had that experience of like you know this topography that's been all around us suddenly gets lit up in a way because you've you've shined this light on it um and you take us as you said earlier in so many different directions um but i'm just kind of curious is what did you begin to discover as you not only were experience experiencing the slime and the birth and things like that, but as you began to follow the kind of intellectual and cultural threads? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, what I began to discover is I think what I am seeking when I'm working on a project, which is, which is just a bunch of really surprising sort of impossible connections between subjects that I would not have put together otherwise. Um, I do want to say that, you know, after I wrote this book and asked uh, the author Karen Balin if she would read it and write a blurb, she pointed out several other books that do address slime or, or you know, decay. Um, my favorite, which I've since read, is Laura Hyen Hugh Kim's book called Entering the Blobosphere, Amusing on Blobs. And it really is more theoretic, like what is a blob? Everything is a blob. Um, and that became kind of the ethos of this project eventually, like, you know, I opened one of the opening sections of the book describes um, Mud Muse, <laughs> which is a Robert Rauschenberg pro project that's very famous from the 70s. Um, and I thought that, oh, that was so interesting. It was like listening mud, like sensory mud. And But then I got as I got into reading more about it and more about art in that period, I started realizing that there was a lot going on about the idea of form and formlessness um, in a painterly sense, right? In the sense of um, abstract or representational art, in the sense of keeping with tradition or, um, or genre or, or veering from it. And so, and that a lot of artists had written about this concept of formlessness that was very hot in the, in the 70s and 80s. And so, so I, I found myself in that lineage just by writing about, you know, art mud in a gallery you know, that was obviously occurring in so many within so many other contexts um and i'm forgetting your question it was what did i discover right along the way yeah i'm just kind of curious so one of the things that, that that's taking place in the essay um I think you saw it as the, you said it quite wonderfully is these impossible connections, but you, you just really don't know suddenly where the, the essay is going to go, what you're going to address next. Um, you know, suddenly we're talking about horror movies. Suddenly we're talking about meteors coming from the sky. Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe about two thirds of the way in you, there, there are some deep rhythms that you think, okay, you know, this is coming back. Um, Mm -hmm. But before you put it into the the formless frame of art, right? It was you out in the world, looking mm -hmm. into slime, looking into you know things as different as um, these this YouTube video community um, or what's taking place, you know, in the history of pornography. And so mm -hmm. I'm just kind of curious to you know here you were tracking down this formless substance and trying to make sense of what it means for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, well, there's an essay by Albert Goldberth that I really love and love to teach and maybe talk about too much, but it's called Delft. And it's about the, um, it does a lot of the things we're talking about here. It makes connections that are surprising. And in the end, you have this sort of absurd feeling that absolutely everything is connected and was pre-planned in some way. Um, but he has in that essay this scene of him, Goldbarth, with his girlfriend making out in her room under a painting of Delft. And there's a cat in the room that has fleas and they're like being bothered by the fleas. And and what I, what I like to think about with that essay is that every, every spoke of what it addresses, and it's a really broad like tour de force of research and tone every single bit of it is present in that scene in the beginning and you sort of can look back after the essay and say it was all here and I think that now looking at this book if I look at maybe like the fourth or fifth section 
where I'm writing about the farm and what it's like to be there. Sort of what I was just describing at the beginning of this interview. You know, there's no soap. The quiet. Um, you know, washing my hands in the water that just comes from a hot spring, so it's like burning hot. And um, that's that's our sanitization practice. Um, everything is there. Like I'm sort of in that in that first big scene. I'm sort of reeling from uh, having met a friend of my father's who groped me in an apartment I was renting from him. And then I like escaped to the Northern country. And then I was like really lonely, like feeling very alone and just like immersed in fluids, you know? Um, and I, I like thinking about the book that way, like how, as you read it, that kind of gives a framework for everything to connect and make sense. And so Really, it was all there from the start, and I was just kind of the research and the writing I was doing and the the investigation of how other scholars had written about porn as a narrative form or how um, movie monsters were made and how they still exist somewhere in buckets. Like all of that felt like a way to explain what I was, what, you know, my corporeal <laughs> and temporal space was at that moment because it was so, it felt so there's a lot of tension there and I was sort of searching for what was going on um, even as I was living it. So I, I, I love that answer. I love it. Um, I just think that it, it's, it says something about like you take some rich moment and a book like this is finally what it takes to explain what it, what it meant or means to be alive in that moment. And that shows us something of what art can do for us which is yeah. it's beautiful what you do. Okay, let, let me jump to something. So so maybe a listener has seen one of these slime videos, <laughs> maybe not. Um, so maybe you'd be willing to describe one, but, but let's just say there's this screenshot of this, this woman covered in slime yeah. um, you tend to crop the images in the book in ways that are disorienting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody might think gross, but of course there's much more than gross. What are we getting or what is the viewer getting when you see this? Mm-hmm. Um, and you might want to do a better job than I did of what the thisness of it actually is. Yeah. Um Well, I mean, I'm so interested to hear from readers, too, about how the slime landed with them. But, um, you know, part of the joy of making this book was trying to think about what happens in a long essay that's primarily driven by the associations of a mind or a voice or kind of a playful spirit towards research. And instead of creating white space that would perhaps suggest to the reader a pause in time, So um, like a moment for them to sit back and process or a shift in the time of the of the text, what's happening on the page, or it could offer the kind of silence. So me um, ceasing to speak for a moment instead of that, I present images, which I'm interested in. I'm interested in using for some of the same purposes can one image of slime offers something like a punchline, like a wah-wah of the trombone, or can one of them create a joke, like something very serious was being talked about, but then a certain type of slime turns that around and makes it funny. Or um, when you can't tell what the slime is, when it looks a little bit like it might be bodily matter, or it might be uh, someone having a sexual experience, like how does that color or um, change the tenor of the moment between two sections. So what what sort of passage of transition does it offer? And the, the book really focuses on at first the slime that I was watching on screen on the farm, which was very particularly brightly colored slimes made by preteens. Um, and all you would see of them was their hands manipulating it. And Uh, It also extends the images to other types of slimes, like Nickelodeon slime you might be familiar with that pours on people's heads and covers them, Um, but also the slime from the horror genre, Um, uh, you know, like the wet death or um, the blob that consumes people. And then there are all these other adjacent 
uh, slimes to both of those that kind of cross each other or are kind of indistinguishable that I'm really becomes a real interest of that book. Like as you're reading, is the image one from a slime horror film? Is it an image from Mud Muse? Is it an image from The Blob? Is it an image from a teen slime channel? Um, and I think that I'm interested in kind of troubling the space between those distinctions, especially because the people who make slimes in different forums are really insistent that they're separate. <laughs> you know, like the fetish of pouring slime on women in bikinis, they insist is separate from the squishing of slime with hands um, with the confessions below it. And, and, and often people insist that the horror genre is very separate from the porn genre, but there are several scholars who are articulating some really interesting connections between those two forms narratively. So the images are sort of asking the reader to consider that and to wonder at or try to name which, which, which form of formlessness they're seeing at any given moment. So what's your sense of, I mean, that's fascinating. What, what's your sense of why they're so invested in those distinctions and policing those distinctions mm-hmm. that you're so quickly able to show are tenuous at best? Yeah. And I'm curious as to what do you gain by showing they don't exist? <laughs> yeah, um, that's such a good question. I think that, um, well... In terms of why the, there are differences between the official terms are ASMR, autosensory meridian response, and ASMR erotica are two categories that have um, folks in those communities have distinguished them. And I think it has to do with, um, this is something the book doesn't address, but the, the spaces within the internet that are designated as protective of younger people. Um, and I think that the, the slime space, the preteen slime space is kind of interested in that, in preserving a kind of innocence um, that can't last long if you have access to the internet. And, um, and also kind of a, 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 a sexlessness uh, that, that is happening, I think, in certain internet communities. In, in the generation I'm seeing come up from high school right now, um, you know, so there are many statistics about um, how much kids who are just turning 18 are making out with each other or having sex or interested in, in even that at this time. And I think that the preteen slime space is, is kind of speaking to us about that in some way. But then also, you know, um, it's not just a interest of that community. You know, slime has captured our attention, um, particularly in several moments across history. And and there are reasons why that is, and and people. I think it it, it draws us um, draws from us something primordial, and that can be read as sexual. It can be read as um, sensorial. You know, interested in touch in a in a life that's often very touchless for people with screens in their pockets. Um, so I think the interest in distinction is really like the community's interest in who they are individually, but what I'm doing by spreading out the slime is kind of trying to say that they're all relevant to one another, that there's something happening with our attention towards slime these days. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a, a moment where you talk about integrity, bodily integrity, and that slime threatens that. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, on some core level, there's at least a, a Western fear, maybe an ableist fear of, you know, the body breaking down yeah. um, or being absorbed. And so, you know, you want to make a clear distinction. This is me. This is not mm-hmm. me. Um, mm-hmm. I am not the slime. The slime is not me. And so this yeah. threatens that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you mentioned, you know, th- that there are these moments in history when slime becomes more, um, more of interest to to a culture and i'm curious you know one of the the things that i've been interested in talking about with authors who have books coming out now mm-hmm. and you have the the tough distinction of having had two new books come out during the pandemic mm-hmm. this one and a, a brilliant book called bright archive which is 
redefined what a book of essays can be. Um, okay. I, I'm curious if you know this this impossible to imagine um, confluence of here's this book on slime right in the middle of what continues to be our pandemic. If you've seen. Does slime light up for anything? Light up anything for us in this pandemic moment that we might not otherwise mm-hmm. have seen? Or to ask it another way, having written this book, are you maybe noticing something that the rest of us aren't about how the pandemic is being portrayed? And you know, I'm thinking of like the moments when people were talking about spittle and mouth rain mm-hmm. and everything else. Um, so I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question, too. And I, you know, something I was nervous about with this book is that it would be read as a book that only emerged from the pandemic, like that was thinking about germs mm. and touch and, and um, you know, collective corporeality and, 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 and loneliness, which was all major issues, you know, over the past two years. And, um, you know, I find it interesting myself to see that there are some strange themes coming up here that weren't that are differently relevant for me today, I'll say. Maybe differently relevant to us all. Um, And I don't know if it speaks at all to what it was like to be indoors for a year, but I wish, I really wish that I had had some team of data scientists tracking the popularity of slime videos in that period versus before. Because, you know, what I was observing was completely before. And I wonder, you know, wonder what we were drawn to at that time was it more slime was it not there se- there seems to be sort of a dip in in the slime culture at this moment and, and I don't know what it what it means what it's a result of but the thing I have thought about with the slime book is you know the emergence of the of the blob <laughs> of the, the earlier movie called it came from outer space um, which was in the the late 50s and then um really the resurgence of slime in the 60s and then early 70s, so like Atomic Submarine, the Angry Red Planet, um, and how that was also the period when nonfiction was emerging as a genre. Uh, And, you know, that's the era when we first start using the term new journalism, when um, novelists are are crying out for (laughs) for more equal uh, space in the magazine pages with nonfiction writers, and there's sort of a funny battle that starts between people who write new journalism and people who write fiction because fiction writers think of that genre as the art form and nonfiction as journalism only and you know there there's um, a lot of interesting pieces written about why nonfiction was what American readers wanted at that time you know we're talking late 50s early 60s and and why since then it's really held space in, in a lot of our imaginations in the bookshelves in the magazine pages and and there's some you know something I think about that is of course like that annoying phrase reality was stranger than fiction right you know the media was giving a lot of Americans their first sense of like how vast and varied the violence of our country was and and how disparate the class experiences were and it was really overwhelming Um, but it, it wasn't that reality was stranger than fiction it was that many have argued folks wanted an intimate experience. They were really flushed with the news cycle and they weren't, and that was this sort of um, omniscient, abstract type of truth. And instead they went towards like funny articles written from a first person perspective (laughs) as a relief from that. And so, you know, I'm interested in in how that might track with the, the time we're living in now when not that reality is stranger than fiction or, or ever has been, but what we're seeking is kind of a close intimacy again um, because we lack it in some way or because what we're being served by, by media and entertainment areas is, is not intimate, is not touchable or, or individualized enough or, or about a specific person looking at the world and saying, I don't have the answers, but here's what I'm seeing. And, and I think that slime... <laughs> does offer that um yeah. genres of slime that that i'm studying in this book and and that yes you know pre during and post pandemic times that is still something we need and we haven't quite found out how to get in this western culture at least 
Yeah, that's so intriguing. It, it makes me think back to how you introduced the book. Um, you know, one of the most intimate genres is the confessional genre, mm-hmm. right? The thing that I hold inside that I have to speak out. Um, and it seems like, at least at first glance for me, there's there's no reason to assume that videos by people who are interested in seeing how slime works, you know, whether it's the hands or it's the poor or something like that would need to put a confession in the comments that has nothing to do with the content. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could, you could speak to that, you know, why, why slime confessions? Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Like Mm -hmm. these two things yoked together. Um, And I would be curious, you know, what you think, speculating about it out there but also you took up that invitation for the book itself Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean i think that that you know there's some people i cite who kind of talk about that when in their analyses of horror and porn but uh, so that's kind of the way i'll respond but the you know i think that there is this kind of like um coded space of the slime caption where people are there for for a type of sensory experience right asmr is describing a kind of tingling up the back of your neck you know something you you couldn't quite experience if you're watching it on your phone in a crowd of people or or um walking you know it's you're sitting down usually by yourself maybe you have headphones in or the volume turned up and and so it's kind of a private moment and and i think that there's a kind of receptivity that someone's asked to perform in those threads of of teenage hands manipulating green blobs. Um, And and so it's like this moment for those creators to express something in a space that's also safe, but where that kind of bodily experience of of openness is demanded. Um, And that tracks in interesting ways when we start looking at the ways that gory horror films prompt visceral responses in their viewers, you know, um, something that people are drawn back to horror for again and again is the kind of uh, physical empathy they might feel when they see someone experience a violence or when they see, you know, a gooey gooey blob like running down the street on screen. There's kind of like the same tingling sensation or or like a you know a, a sort of like backlash in the body that can happen that horror filmmakers are often trying to elicit um, so that those are yoked in some way and then there's also this argument within the book about uh, about cum shots and about um, semen and orgasms and the visible types of pleasure that porn often describes in the shapes that it takes in popular forms. And so what does it mean, right? If those, if there are forms of pleasure that aren't visible in the slime manner and what does it mean about power and what does it mean about how people learn to be intimate with each other? If mainstream forms really are only showing one way of being together. Um, so that, you know, that continues like what, um, what is slime on screen eliciting in the body in each of those examples? It's something different, but, um, but it's, uh, it's reaching from the screen, right? It's something that is intended to happen in your space, in your physicality through this strange substance that is sometimes real and sometimes faked in each of those accounts. So that's one way I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. There are those those genres that's, you know, humor writing elicits a bodily laugh, um, Mm -hmm. certain kind of sentimental fiction, you know, if you're weeping, when Dickens would read his novels, people would weep. And that was a kind of sign Mm -hmm. of things happening. Um, You know, and when you were talking about about horror films and, and porn, in the book, you analyze these not just as sort of, you know, effective centers, but, you know, the way that slime and, and semen and blood operate in these, they create narrative structures mm-hmm. um, and they create, you know, what comes across as specifically kind of 
visible male narrative structures. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're interested in, and it seems the book is interested in questioning those and escaping those. And, mm-hmm. and I'm just kind of curious, given the press as well, like, do you see this, this book as a feminist project? Is there a way you would describe it? Or, you know, yeah. um, I think I heard you talk about it once as kind of queerness informs it. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk about it from that, that angle, or if that's, you find that productive. Yeah, I think I do. And I would say that, you know, Noemi is a feminist press, and this is a book informed by feminism and, and approaches to literature that are feminist. And I am also, you know, the, um, I think many folks have written about the the sort of Freytag's triangle of story, how you begin low, you end high, there's a climax, and then there's the denouement, you go back down to where you returned. And that is kind of not only a structural scaffolding, but like a way of recognizing your own experience of time in books that you read, or of taking that form back out into the world and expecting it from other encounters or other stories or other books or forms of media. And so um, this book is definitely responding to that by, you know, uh, slime is definitely attempted as a counter form to the the triangle um, that's traditionally considered uh, necessary for storytelling or for selling books. Um, which is kind of a resistance to it. But also I am interested in the idea of a queer form here and what it could mean for, you know, an an experience of a sexual awakening or an experience of reading or being or being seen by pages to be queer in some way. And I think that I'm interested in how formlessness can point to that um, in terms of experiences that are not heteronormative, but especially in terms of experiences that are not gendered singularly female or singularly male, just a woman or just a man. Like how can this type of form help us to express uh, ways of being and more importantly, maybe ways of seeing that are not cis in that way? Yeah, I think it in an interview, Ocean Vong said something about you know, he was using, um, I think, a Japanese form to do his latest work of autofiction memoir. Mm-hmm. And he just made the observation of, like, in the West, almost any kind of content gets sacrificed to that Freytag's pyramid, that beginning, mm-hmm. middle, and an end, and how many stories have been mutilated by the fact that mm-hmm. no matter what they're about, they have to follow this pattern mm-hmm. um, that seems inevitable. And, you know, we've seen writers escape it. Um, but it sounds like the way you're talking about it, which is very exciting for me, is is that you don't see slime and the form that you created this book in as as the only way it can happen that this form might open up opportunities for writing about other things besides slime. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially in our understanding of what narrative means, you know, I think narrative can mean so much more than like the continuous rise and plot where one scene links to another in not even linear time, but like the same set of characters, the same temporality, the same year. (laughs) And and yeah, I I guess because I'm obsessed with page shape and form, um, I like that this columnar paragraph style might insist on a kind of upset of, um, you know, the stages of a story and instead rec- recommend to the reader that they see everything is connected or everything flowing into everything else both ways, not just forward, but also backwards. Um, I used to, you know, when I was drafting this book early on, I really wanted to think of a way that I could signal to the reader that when they read the last line of the book, they could also just follow that up with the first line of the book. (laughs) So it could be, you know, truly a loop in some way. And I do, like, I do still think that in the same way that I think that the title of a poem is is the last line of most poems. Like you start and then you read and then you read the title once again and it kind of 
um, affirms or undermines or um, echoes what what you took from the poems reading. Like I think that that's what feels fun to me about this book is it doesn't really offer a, a conclusion or a resolution, but instead you could just go back to the first page and start again. Yeah, yeah. It it excites me because, and you had just mentioned, you, you said something like, what's fun about this book? I think if I pulled any sentence out um, and showed it to someone, for the most part, there it it feels on the surface or or maybe on the sentence level like the the tone is a little cooler and more analytic mm-hmm. but then as you read it it just it seems like you as the author are having a tremendous amount of fun putting <laughs> this stuff together like the fun of of intellectual connection the fun of kind of personal exploration the fun of bringing these things that aren't quote unquote supposed to be together into Mm -hmm. this really productive and strange conversation Mm -hmm. um and so i love the idea that that this could be a model for for what for what could happen on the page i don't even want to say the essay because i think it's Mm -hmm. doing things that that deeply trouble what what the essay has imagined itself to be in a good way. Would you read a little of it? Could we hear a little of it? Sure. Yeah. Um, Can I start uh, maybe page 30? Sure. Wherever you want. Okay. Um, I'll just read two sections and uh, I'll describe the images aloud for you as I read. I'm going to read from a page where um, halfway through it's broken up by a black and white image of a skin of slime that is bubbling. Language comes from the body, out of the mouth. But before a language, there is a silence. There is a groan, a yell, a burble, a brush with grasses, a sucking in the mud. The shape of a landform does much to determine the shape of words. Here in Iceland, the isolation of island living means that Ivan and his family can read Old Norse because modern Icelandic is so similar, so uninterrupted. The earliest people to arrive here, say some, were literate when they came, and so the island was first known by their material, papier, the stuff of poor hermit monks who stowed themselves in the hills and read until Vikings arrived. My mother used to play an old song about a monk living in a cave by the sea with just a visiting bird to speak to. He was dying, I remember, from age or loneliness, or otherwise he drowned, though I'm not sure if these versions seemed very different to me then. The ancient Greek philosophers and some modern linguists maintain that the difference between the human and the animal is not sound-making, but language, and that our ancestors developed language by mimicking natural sounds, so that most words began as onomatopoeia. Now there's a slim image of the shoulders and mouth of a woman in a white tank top who has just been slimed. In the beginning, St. Augustine confessed to believing in astrology. In the beginning, a farmer finds an unusual blob in his field and pokes it with a stick. The material quickly latches onto his hand and consumes him. It starts on the outskirts, where the farmer has been watching the sky and the fence line for generations, where the innocent shepherd sits beneath his tree, daydreaming and jerking off. In the beginning, there was the early soup of life that orbited oceans, biding its time, pooling in slick niches where it pulsed, throwing off the light, murmuring as it hugged the edges of coastlines where the oldest of us would climb out. In the beginning, on an island in the Arctic Ocean, between the internet hour and sleep, between the bedroom window and the space where a spider tried to catch me, I'm reading books in one language about another with my back against cold glass. I can't pronounce anything right, but I can smell my rank hair in any position. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thanks. So Sarah, I I think you, you know, there's that phenomenon whenever an author writes a book about a subject, then all their friends start sending us, s- sending forwards of any time they come across something. Um, <laughs> so you're going to be getting forwards of slime from everyone. Yes. Uh, but I am curious about about where where you're going next. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you you've written about slime. 
I'll make a bad joke. Where does that trail lead? You know, what's <laughs> what's next? Um, would you be willing to share where your curiosity is taking you now? Mm-hmm. Um, well, hopefully slime is a continuous loop that keeps moving on its own and I can leave it behind. And that's something I like about the project that I'm sort of saying I wrote it in this weird vacuum and and it lives. It's, it's it kind of became a zombie on its own and I can, <laughs> you know, move forward now. Um, and I think that it may be interesting for me to observe myself in this moment and say that my first two projects are books in which the process used to make them is evident in the book um, or that the book is interested in the process it took to make them and so invites the reader somewhat into participating in that process or registering it as they read. And and I think that's true for the next project I'm working on as well. And I think it's both an excuse to always give myself some recipe or, or some constraint to push against as I work because writing is hard. Um, But this time I think I'm writing a book length, project all about um in a list (laughs) and it is a list of 163 sections that each correspond to the title of a painting in one artist's body of work so it's kind of a nice um form to fit myself into and it also allows for a certain progression (laughs) as you work on it and um a lot also a lot of freedom Mm -hmm. A book link worth of ekphrasis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. But responding to titles as much as images. Okay. Mm-hmm. And are, are you imagining a book in which the images appear or will they be absent? I don't know yet. I think, I don't know. I think certainly I wouldn't have like the image of the painting that the title describes paired with the title. I, I'm sort of, I like to say I'm anti-ekphrasis only because I think ekphrasis is so much more than, you know, writing that responds to or describes images. And so maybe I would be someone to leave the images out and and be interested in the experiment of text describing images on its own, even if they're failing, even if they're they're doing it wrong, you know. Well, I think after reading this, this wonderful, brilliant, book no one would ever think of you as simple or straightforward in any way whatsoever <laughs> no i can't do it well i hope you'll come back and talk to us when the the project is complete yeah thank you sarah minor thanks so much for being on the show thank you for your brilliant questions it's been really fun to be here my name is eric lemay and you've been listening to an interview with sarah minor about her book slim confessions the universe as a spider or spit here on the new books network <laughs>